0: Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone.
1: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today I wanted to start off with a short reading of a few lines from the Odyssey that will introduce uh, the subject we're getting into for the next few episodes. So uh, this is from the Odyssey, book 11. I'm going to be reading from the Emily Wilson translation. Uh, But this is a section of the story where Odysseus is describing the horrors that he witnessed in Hades. And, And there are different kinds of horrors. Like some of the horror of Hades is just a kind of profound depressing disappointment with con- when he's confronted with the reality of how crappy it is to be dead you know that like he he tries to talk to ajax and ajax can't even really say anything but then there's this other section where he starts seeing more uh, dantean inferno kind of horrors of actual tortures and so he sees king minos he sees orion he sees sisyphus famously uh you know, in in the futile labor of pushing the boulder up a hill only to see it roll down again. But eventually he comes to a figure called Tantalus. And then here's what Odysseus says about Tantalus. I saw the pain of Tantalus in water to his chin, so parched, no way to drink. When that old man bent down toward the water, it was gone. Some god had dried it up, and at his feet dark earth appeared. Tall, leafy trees hung fruit above his head, sweet figs and pomegranates and brightly shining apples and ripe olives, but when he grasped them with his hands, the wind hurled them away towards the shadowy clouds. Now, when I look at the contraposition of the two tortures of Tantalus, you got the one, you know, he always wants to reach up to get the delicious fruit from the tree, but the wind kicks up, it pulls it out from his hands, and he can't ever get the food. That's a, that's a, a, a torture in Tartarus by starvation, which is not good. Obviously, starvation is very bad. And it's probably more expressively, uh, phrased the second half of this, uh, this situation but it's actually the first half that fills me with more horror when it talks about how he's he's standing in water so it's like you know he he feels it lapping around on his skin but every time he tries to kneel down to put his face to it to get a drink the water just is pulled away as if by a tide the god's dry it up away from his mouth and he can't ever have a drink to me that's the more terrifying half of this situation
2: yeah yeah um, i i love the the image of tantalus as this um this being that is, uh, it's he's like he's suspended between his desires, between his needs.
1: Needs or desires,
2: depending on how you want to frame it here.
1: Right. Well, I guess this raises questions about the the biology of your shade in Hades or Tartarus. Like, does it actually need to eat and drink and, and he can't get it? Or is this just some kind of, uh, I don't know, psychological need his soul has that's not really biological? I guess, yeah, given
2: what we, we, we uh, believe about the underworld via uh, other uh, myth cycles, I guess it's the idea that he doesn't actually need the fruit or the water to live, if you call this living, he's forever suspended in a state of, yeah. of undeath and unlife, uh, but, but wants to have the water, wants to
1: have the fruit. Maybe that's the kind of question you're not actually supposed to bother thinking about. That's like the annoying pedantic question that Plato would bring up.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, speaking of uh, of philosophy, uh, there is the, the concept of uh, Buridan's ass. Uh, named for 14th century French philosopher uh, Jean Buridan, uh, this one this is a basic idea that also pops up in the works of Aristotle and uh, uh, Al Ghazali, uh, various other writers. Um, the, the more common thirst related version is: if you have a donkey that is both hungry and thirsty, and placed uh, equal distance from both food and
1: water, it will remain immobile and die. Now, this may be apart from the lesson that the the thought experiment is trying to produce, but uh, I think that's not necessarily true. I think there <laughs> might very well be biological priorities that would place access to water above access to food. Yeah, it's it's one of these paradoxes that
2: maybe doesn't, uh, you, you can't exactly recreate it in, in reality and expect it right. to be quite as uh, captivating. But uh, abstractly, it's, it's kind of fascinating. So, as Aristotle put it, "quote A man being just as hungry as thirsty and placed in between food and drink must necessarily remain where he is and starve to death." So, obviously, that's not going to be the case if you are hungry and thirsty, and the the waiter brings you yeah, your sandwich and your um, your cola at the same time. You're not going to die. You don't have to give the the waiter special instructions. You, well, you worked in a restaurant. Uh, industry joe this is not right. like a, they don't tell you this right they don't say look don't put the drink and the food in front of the customer at the same time or they will they will just remain immobile and die
1: it is actually broadly considered very important in restaurants to get people their drinks before you get them their food if you bring them food before they get their drinks people will get very confused and upset <laughs> well and uh i i know I, I i often
2: hear you know when you're a lot of times when you're hungry you're actually thirsty and therefore to avoid uh, and, and prevent overeating you want to uh, make sure you have plenty of liquids as well so yeah like if i'm going into a restaurant situation i i definitely want my water first because i feel like i'm gonna i'm gonna have a more balanced uh, experience uh, eating lunch or dinner
1: there You'll certainly have a more pleasant experience, though actually – sorry, I'm just introducing exceptions to every single (laughs) thing we say so far. But uh, this does come up in a paper that I want to look at later. There is a concept that's been documented widely in animal biology known as dehydration-induced anorexia, Mm -hmm. uh, which is essentially the idea that uh, many animal species, certainly humans and rodents – Will naturally restrict their own food intake in response to dehydration. Now, again, there are some exceptions. Some animals like get their water entirely from food and so forth. But, uh, but, but typically, like if you get rodents and and they are thirsty, they will eat less at each meal you give them. Mm. Not saying that's a way to live your life, though. I mean, yeah. better to be hydrated.
2: Well, you know, coming back to mythology a bit, I, I thought we might mention just a few other you know bits of myth and folklore and and legend and so forth concerning thirst, because uh, I feel like you know we we have the sort of mythological uh, echoes of the basic biological reality, and maybe these can help and in, uh, inform and shape our conversation as we move forward. Ah, uh, so there's one uh, particular story I was taken with from uh, uh, from from ancient China. Uh, it's an ancient story dating back at least as far as the Shan Jing. This is the, um, the the fabulous book of monsters that we uh, we did an episode, did a couple episodes on I think last year, and have recently or will be uh, uh,
1: rerunning those episodes very soon. The title is sometimes translated as the Classic of the Mountains and Seas.
2: Yeah. Uh so there's a lot of a lot of mythological beings and places mentioned in the book um and uh and uh, there's there is this account of Kuafu uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a story that continues to be told today in modern China, and there have been many versions of it um, according to uh, Yang and, and, and Turner in Chinese mythology. Basically, what you have in Kuofu is this primordial giant with two yellow snakes circling his ears and two more yellow snakes in his hands. And he's powerful, very powerful, certainly, but he overestimates his own power. And depending on the story and the exact telling, he either challenges the sun to a race or he just wants to chase the sun's shadow and catch the sun. I've also read a version where he wants to prolong the day by catching the sun. Like if I can just get my hands on the sun, then it can't move away. It can't set. The day will never end. Oh, that's a good plan. Yeah. Well, either way it works out this giant runs after the sun intending to catch it um but the sun stays just ever out of his grasp and what happens well he grows ever thirstier so eventually he just has to stop for a second and he drinks the yellow river um then he stops and he drinks uh drinks another river uh, but he's still so thirsty that he heads for the great marsh to the north uh but on the way there he collapses he dies of thirst and uh, th- this is uh, one of those stories that is often used to explain geography. So there are different – all these different details about what happens to his body once he falls, what happens to his walking stick um, or his club once it falls, what happens to the dirt from his sandals. You know, they become foothills, that kind of thing. Oh, uh, but see. it's also a tale about just overreaching. And so the idea of, um, of, of this giant chasing the sun is the idea that, yeah, he's powerful, but he thinks he's more powerful than he is,
1: and it's going to get him into trouble. Oh, that's interesting because to bring it back to Tantalus, uh, I mean, it's somewhat different, but both stories have the uh, the, the problem with the character is that they're in some way brazen or over-audacious in their challenging of celestial figures or gods because, the well, there are multiple stories of what Tantalus did in order to deserve this punishment in, in Tartarus, um, but one of the most commonly received stories is that Tantalus well so it's often said that Tantalus like uh, shared a table with the gods so he was a king but he'd be invited up to Olympus to, to dine with Zeus and apparently at some point Tantalus was serving a banquet to the gods and as the main course for some reason he decided to kill and serve his own son so he like oh. yeah, yeah that that's that's a bad choice. So he, yeah, he boils his own son, serves his meat to the gods. Uh, it's like this horrible sommelier competition. Like, can you tell this is my son you're eating? <laughs> and the gods can tell they are good sommeliers, so they, they figure it out. And, uh, and apparently cannibalism and the killing of kin were considered among the worst taboos in ancient Greece. So it's like a story of the guy doing like the worst, most awful thing you can imagine in order to embarrass or humiliate the gods and the gods <laughs> catch him doing it. So they send him to this horrible punishment in the afterlife. And so, I do think it's kind of telling that this is a guy who does like the worst thing you could possibly imagine doing in in ancient Greek ideas like that he commits the worst violent taboos, killing his own son and trying to get the gods to commit cannibalism and what what is the punishment for that? It's eternal uh unsatiable hunger and thirst, yeah, yeah, there's this there's something about thirst uh, especially that it's just so uh,
2: it's so primal and it's uh and it's this thing that can just crescendo towards madness and of course death um so it, we we uh, we find numerous accounts where the gods become involved with human thirst um, there's an interesting story uh in Hindu traditions this one appears in the Mahabharata it's uh, about a, a desert dwelling sage by the name of Ut- Utanka uh and Utanka uh, is, uh, there are various accounts of, uh, you know, of what he got up to, but, uh, there's basically one of the, the, the key ideas here is that he was witness to Krishna's universal form. So this is the same universal form that's shown to Arjuna during the famous, uh, you know, now I am become death encounter. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, but with Utanka, he's given a special divine boon. Uh, so he's told whenever he, he uh, feels thirst, uh, his thirst will be quenched, um, so, uh, you also, you, there's this uh, idea that he's uh, followed by uh, by rain clouds, even in the desert. And so, sometimes uh, uh, you, you'll see uh, these clouds in real life referred to as Utanka's uh, clouds. Um, so, the cl- clouds sent by the gods to follow him around. Hmm. And there's another story too, that involves um, him, him thirsting and the thirst being quenched, uh, and but water being sent to him uh, via a member of a lesser caste, a lower caste, and uh, and then he refuses, and as it turns out the uh, the water in question was going to be uh, uh, the potion of immortality, but he was not ready to receive it spiritually because he was not willing to accept it from this individual.
1: hmm. Coming back to the earlier detail in this where uh, Utanka is given the boon that whenever he is thirsty, his thirst will be quenched. I wonder what is the, what is the more specific imagination of that scenario? Like that, that water will appear somehow for him to drink or that there's a kind of quenching without water, in which case it kind of makes you think what is quenching? Because the, when I think of, the feeling of quenching thirst it is specifically the feeling of like water filling your mouth and going down your throat
2: hmm yeah yeah the um it's not just the the idea that we're going to suddenly feel magically oh course how would that happen right you can't just turn it off with a switch our, our one our primary means of alleviating thirst is to drink water and therefore yeah. uh, you know it's hard to disconnect the two
1: well actually one of the uh, some of the studies I want to talk about as we go on in the series have to do with the what is the relationship between the feeling of of thirst quenching and the hydration of the body? It's not as direct as you might think. Hmm.
2: Now, uh, another example of of supernatural thirst, and and in this case also hunger – Of course, you have in various Eastern traditions, you have hungry ghosts and uh, the the Gaki are a type of hungry ghost in the tradition of Japan, also described as, uh, as, as always hungry and always thirsty, just monsters of torment. So they have huge bellies, bestial heads, talons and so forth, and their home is the barren wasteland realm of Gakido. And they sometimes drag the dying to hell, uh, but they can be driven out through ceremonies. Uh, I think that they also are often illustrated as having very narrow necks. So it's like their hunger, their the, is great, their belly is great, their neck is narrow, like their their throat is narrow. Their ability to quench uh, their their bodily hunger and thirst is entirely insufficient. Of course, hungry ghosts are, are uh, you know, widespread again in, in Eastern traditions. Uh, but, but I ran across an interesting tradition from pre Islamic Arab culture that I'd never uh, heard of before that I thought was really interesting, and it concerns owls. Uh, I was reading Echoes of a Thirsty Owl by T. Emil Homerin, published in uh, the Journal of Near Eastern Studies from 1985. So the author here writes that. There was an idea, in, again, in uh, pre-Islamic Arab cultures that uh, the soul of a bird was, quote-unquote, spread out through the body of a human being. And when the human died, um, the resulting bird circled the body and cried out over the grave of the deceased. So the, and then in time, this bird grows, and it becomes a savage and shrieking owl. Uh, and the owl, of course, haunts uh, the places of death.
1: Well, that almost makes me wonder. I mean, I, I think about the the spooky movie trope of having an owl hooting in the darkness in the graveyard. But uh, I don't know. The more I think about that, that's probably a coincidence. Well, I mean, owls are
2: are 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 associated with uh, with death and and uh, the supernatural th- throughout various cultures. You know, because they're mm-hmm. they're creatures of the night. They they fly so silently that it's almost like they're not even there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they have those large eyes, their, their, their head appears to have various kind of humanoid qualities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I think there is some connection there, maybe not, not a direct connection, but a connection via the, uh, the, the widespread associations in, in various cultures between the owl and the, and the dead. Okay. And also with various omens, you know, sometimes uh, in, in different cultures, uh, uh, the owl is a, is a dire omen to behold.
1: Well, I guess this would depend on the owl species, but also their vocalizations have to play a role in, in spooky associations.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think – and also, I mean, sometimes owls don't make a sound at all. Again, either they're flying silently or they're just uh, sitting there silently, just kind of watching. And so uh, maybe connected to that, that, uh, that, in, that it's uh, also said that the, uh, these owls may also just sort of check in on sons and grandsons to see what happens uh, after they have died. Uh, Other traditions say that the owl will return to the grave once every century. And then there's this idea that in the event that the deceased might seek vengeance for something or another, the grave of the dead should be watered to, quote, slake the thirst of the dead. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, of course, in this, we're probably getting into that. Uh, You know, something we we hinted at already, the idea that, that thirst takes on so many different forms, and the water that quenches the thirst, or the liquid that quenches the thirst takes on so many different forms in our traditions. Like, is thirst... Uh, thirst is, of course, something we all feel. It's, uh, you know, we all need water. Uh, but depending on how it's written up, you could uh, you can describe thirst as a as an as a need or as a desire, as something that your will has uh, the ability to overcome or not overcome. Uh, you know, thirst can be uh, portrayed as something positive, like the thirst for knowledge, the thirst for. For, uh, uh, for for God, uh, but also thirst can be seen as like the thirst for, for wine or for blood or for vengeance.
1: Well, yeah, exactly. So I, I was also thinking about the abstract metaphors of thirst that we use um, and what it means to, to choose that word in particular, to, to say that you want something by saying that you thirst for it. So in the example of someone who has a thirst for vengeance, how is that different from just wanting vengeance? To me, at least in that case, thirst as a metaphor, uh, as a metaphor for want, implies a kind of irrational desperation in the in the acquisition behavior, it's something that will be sought without hindrance and without reason. Now, obviously, that wouldn't exactly apply to other metaphorical uses of thirst, like you said, the the thirst for knowledge. But again, that that word choice seems to me to imply something different than somebody just saying somebody. Likes knowledge or seeks knowledge, mm. it suggests a kind of primal need, I guess.
2: Yeah, and and I guess you also have to factor in that you know, for a lot of us, we live in in very water rich uh, environments and water rich uh, cultures and uh, uh, socioeconomic uh, places. So you know, we 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 don't feel true thirst for the most part. Yeah, uh, you know, we don't we don't feel the, the the thirst that is approaching madness and death. Um. And, uh, and, and then, again, it comes down to, like, what is the person thirsting for? If you're talking about somebody feeling a, a mighty thirst, but you're alluding to their desire to have an alcoholic beverage, like, that's, that's a slightly different thing than just talking about, oh, well, this is, this is thirsty work that they're doing and, you know, implying that they're just, they're just building up a natural uh, need for um, a, a you know, big draught of
1: water to satisfy their thirst. Yeah, it seems when people use thirst to talk about alcohol, I always detect an air of uh, of irony in that usage. Yeah. Like it's supposed to be a little bit funny that you're using it that way,
2: right? Because if you're truly thirsty, uh, the alcohol is not what you should be using right your thirst. Uh, now, just to come back to the the idea of these owls uh, briefly. Apparently, some writings uh, say that the blood and the brain in the um, in the deceased fused together after death to form the owl. Others would say that it was born of one's bones, and that the owl would then erupt from the head, uh, which I think is a, a wonderful and, and horrifying supernatural uh, 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 picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was uh, referenced in a number of different uh, poems um, by a lot of uh, pre-Islamic uh, Arab poets. The uh, Arabic poet uh, Alan Bari wrote, quote, And it is said that man, when he is killed and his revenge is not taken, an owl comes out of his grave and then continues screeching, quench me, quench me, continuing so until his killer is killed. Whoa. Uh, anyway, that, that article is titled uh, Echoes of a Thirsty Owl. Um, if anyone's interested, I recommend reading that. Uh, he also compare, you know, compares it to various other traditions concerning the owl as uh, some sort of a supernatural being. He talks a little bit about, um, about the, the role of the owl in Greek mythology and so forth. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Now, we, we can't very well cover a complete cultural history of human thirst here, but it is worth driving home that thirst is an important aspect of history and civilization. Um, in, in obvious ways, and maybe sometimes in less obvious ways, I was reading a, a 1994 article in the Journal of European Archaeology by uh, Slavomil Winkel titled, the uh, archaeology of thirst, and in it, the author points out that naturally, the human satisfaction of thirst is an essential part of the human experience, and it's a but it's of course of great interest in archaeology. But a number of obstacles have to be overcome. So first of all, you just have the the volatile nature of liquids. You also have uh, the, the scant chemical signatures to be found inside ancient drinking vessels. Um, also, scarce uh, paleo uh, botanical analysis of those residues. Um, it, they also mentioned, quote, the functionally unspecific nature of most vessels, which I thought was interesting. Reminded me of our,
1: our uh, holiday discussion oh, yeah, of leg shaped vessels. <laughs> yeah. It's a hard, a lot of times people are like, I don't know what people would put in this leg. Yeah, like we can
2: assume they would put oil in it, uh, you know, but it, depending on what the vessel is and what the culture is and how much additional information we have, we might just have to guess and be like, okay, it seems like you might drink out of this or you might just, or maybe this is just for storing some sort of oil. On top of that, we often have scant uh, uh, iconographical information. Uh, also, uh, this is a, a big one, and this is this applies to far more than just drinking vessels, but uh, if the vessel is organic in nature, uh, we may not have any re- re- uh, uh, surviving examples of what it was.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And on top of that, by and large, we tend to focus on exceptional examples of drinking and storage vessels, which of course limit study to a very slim part of a given culture. you know so it's like a highly ornate decorative piece that you know maybe is of the same shape. And basic function is what people would have, in general, been using to, to drink water or store water, etc. Uh, but maybe not. Like maybe it is. Uh, it's it's more about looking interesting as opposed to anything else. But uh, the archaeology of thirst ends up encompassing some very ancient examples, um, including things like Neolithic wells. Um, mm. Water is the most basic means of meeting human thirst. And it's taken on mundane and fantastic connotations at times. But on top of this, of course, humans have come to drink saps, uh, blood, uh, of course, various concoctions such as mead and wine and beer and more. Uh, but uh, but I guess water, you know, water remains the big one, obviously. And another idea worth mentioning in all this that I was reading about um, is the idea that, OK, so human thirst is, of course, ubiquitous. Everybody is going to thirst. Everyone needs water. Uh, and so if you look back um uh, to uh, to Jewish and uh, Islamic traditions you you find in both um uh, legal traditions this idea of the right of thirst um the the idea being that like every uh, ev- every every human uh, governed by this law has this right of thirst uh to this right to water via their own thirst and in Islamic law apparently this extended to animals as well animals had the right of thirst which gave them meant that they had a right to access water based on their thirst. But but it's also it's interesting how you know this sort of uh, this this foreshadows a, a lot of our, our our modern relationship with water. The idea that that uh, the right to water is classified as a basic human right by the United Nations. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, at the same time, uh, not everyone has uh, equal access to to water, and uh, and this is going to continue to be a problem moving forward. And of course, you can't help but then take all of that. And relate it back to our metaphorical treatment of, of thirst. You know, how does uh, uh, how does that change? You know, if you're if, if you're if you're talking about thirst in reference to uh, you know spiritual needs and um, and uh, you know thirst for knowledge, like how is that different if you're if you're expressing that uh, within a you know in a place where there where water is plentiful, where uh, drinking water is plentiful, or a place where um, uh, access is more limited. But I guess before we can answer any of these questions, we need to back up quite a bit and just talk about thirst as a biological reality. What is it and how does it work?
1: Yeah, and so this was actually rather interesting to me because uh, it turns out I, I knew less about thirst than I realized. Uh, and uh, and uh, what we do know about thirst and what we don't know about thirst are both pretty interesting. Uh, so I was reading an article called just called Thirst that was published in Current Biology in 2016 by David E. Lieb, Christopher A. Zimmerman, and Zachary A. Knight. And this article is essentially a summary of all the existing research on thirst. It was, as of the year 2016, a, a sort of perfect primer catching everybody up on what do we know about thirst and what do we not know? Now, before we get into the meat of that discussion, I guess uh, to to just cover the very basics, uh, the first fact before we get into anything else, you are a water bag. That that (laughs) is what we are. That is what all of us are. We, We are not just simple water bags, but our bodies are essentially water bags over any other material description. All the animal life that currently lives on land evolved from creatures that used to live in the ocean where you're surrounded by water all the time. And when we evolved to live on land, we had to create essentially uh, bags that would contain water to take with us. Because all of the, uh, of the biological chemistry, the biochemistry of life takes place in water, in solutions of water. And so as water bags, uh, we, you know, we, we are complex autonomous water bags, but most of those complex autonomous activities actually require that there be a fairly precise amount of water in the bag and a fairly precise concentration of various substances, things like sodium, for instance, that pretty precise amounts be dissolved in the water in the bag and so various processes of life are constantly leading to water coming in and out of the bag. Uh, so there there are several common routes of water to be added to the bag. Uh, we're familiar with the most common of those, which is drinking fluid, drinking water or or fluids that are mainly water, or eating food with water content. And that uh, the second one there, eating food with water content, is uh, less prominent for humans because you know we typically drink a glass of water with food or between meals or whatever. But mm-hmm. there are some animals that that basically get almost all of their water from their food.
2: Yeah, yeah. This includes certain desert species such as the kangaroo rat and the, the kangaroo mouse, which of course uh, on the planet Arrakis becomes the uh, the 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 the, uh, the, the mouse uh, um We also have things like the sand cat, the sand gazelle. Um, and, uh, I, I know just in my household, it also seems to include my cat who does not seem to drink water at all anymore. Um, we, we have to lean heavily on moist foods to get, uh, to get her, her liquids. So, uh, feeding her wet food, adding a little bit of water, like sneaking it into the wet food. And yet if we make the wet food too wet, she will say, no, it's too much like water. I will not have it. Uh, Wow. (laughs) And then we put out water for her. We've tried the fountains. We've tried everything. The only thing she ever actually drank out of was a fish tank when we had a fish tank. And then she would not stop drinking out of the fish tank. But any other uh, thing we've tried, she hasn't gone for. And so when she's had some issues before, it's like you know she's clearly um, dehydrated in the past we've even had to uh, had to um, use an iv to give her the water so we we still have a whole bunch of bags of fluid around in case she has any any flare ups of her issues but in terms of just like drinking straight water she's not interested at all
1: Wow. Well, simultaneously, that is kind of fascinating. But also, I, I feel for her, and I feel for you guys. That, that sounds very frustrating.
2: <laughs> now, we're at a, I mean, everybody seems to be at a comfortable level right now. She's she seems to be getting all the liquid she needs through her um, her meat paste. But uh, uh, but it's it's weird with cats because yeah, I think some people have this experience with with cats where they, they really have to be tricked into drinking water. But others will just drink it on the fly out of toilets or dripping faucets and so forth.
1: Right. So all of that is direct water acquisitions. Of course, you get water from drinking water. You get some smaller amount of water from eating food that contains water. But then apparently there's, there's a secondary route for water acquisition by eating food through what's known as metabolic water, mm. uh, which is when your metabolism oxidizes various energy-containing substances that you eat – and produces water in the process. So some water is created at the molecular level by your metabolism. And there are some organisms that get a a large amount of their, their water content from metabolic water. Humans only get a very small amount from it. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think like some desert dwelling organisms and some birds and stuff get, uh, get all or almost all of their water by, Uh, by chemical reactions that happen inside their body after they eat food and turn parts of that food into water molecules.
2: Now, one of the interesting things I was reading about some of these desert species, um, and uh, at least with some of them, uh, you know, if they're in in captivity – and they are offered water. Well, then when they when they their thirst builds up, they will drink the water. So mm-hmm. it's not uh, it's not like everything. I don't want to imply that anything out there uh, that uh, gets most of its water through its meat is going to be like my cat and just refuse to drink water. You know, she has her her own
1: issues going on. Yeah, I'm sure that varies by organism. Okay, but those are the routes in. You've got directly through drinking and and eating and then secondarily through metabolism. But then you've got a number of routes for water to be be eliminated. So you've got urination, of course, and then you've got loss through defecation. Uh, You've got evaporation through the lungs. People sometimes don't think about this, but you lose water when you exhale. Water vapor comes out of your mouth. Or out of your nose. And then there is also evaporative loss of water through the skin, such as through sweating. So, uh, uh, And then other, the, other more minor things. I mean, obviously, some extremely tiny amount of water evaporates off of the liquid on the surface of your eyes and so forth. But, but those are the big ones. Uh, the
2: defecation is worth mentioning, uh, probably stressing again because uh, I think most people are probably familiar with this. But obviously, if one is in a uh, is suffering from a condition that results in you know um, um, uh, diarrhea or um, you know some, some sort of dysentery situation, you end up losing more and more water through defecation, and therefore you have to make sure you're drinking more and more water to make up for that water loss. Right. Also, just a reminder, out, uh, anyone out there, a well-fitted and well-manufactured still suit will collect all of this as it leaves your body. Uh, there, all the routes out will be covered, and you'll
1: lose no more than a thimble's worth of water per day. We got to stress well-fitted, though. You, you get the That's wrong right. still suit on there, you're going to have all kinds of gaps and things not working right. That's right. You don't
2: know how to work the straps, and you're not, you don't have that forehead piece on uh, correctly. It's just not going to work
1: um, at, at an optimal level. All right. Well, anyway, I want to come back to some of the findings that are summarized in that current biology paper by Lieb et al. that I mentioned earlier. And again, this is from 2016. So there will be more uh, research that we get into from after 2016 that adds to some of these findings. But this is where we were when this when this good summary came out. So in the human body, the brain monitors the body's water content. And when certain thresholds are reached in the that information monitoring system, system, it motivates the body to drink fluids. Of course, it's not only the decrease of fluid volume in the body that makes us thirsty. One of the most important things to understand in the the maintenance of the body's water content is the importance of something known as osmolality. That's O-S-M-O-L-A-L-I-T-Y. This is the concentration of various particles, such as electrolytes, like sodium, that are dissolved in the body's water content. Uh, and you'll, you'll see this often described as blood osmolality. It's basically uh, functionally the same thing. The liquid part of our blood plasma is roughly 90% water. So when people talk about blood osmolality, they're talking about osmolality of the body's water content. The brain is actually incredibly sensitive to changes in blood osmolality, an increase in just 1% of uh, of the blood osmolality can cause an animal to feel thirst. And the authors write, quote, this sensation in turn is sufficient to orient and energize all of an animal's actions toward the goal of finding and consuming water. Thus, the study of thirst is the study of how the brain performs this remarkable transformation, such that small changes in the composition of the blood become a potent and specific motivational drive. Uh, and and the more I thought about that, the more interesting it became that essentially just sort of eating a small amount of salt, for example, is enough to to motivate my brain to change all of my hip behavior uh, because my osmolality goes up. The salt dissolved in my body's water content increases. In order to balance that out, my body wants me to go get some more water to drink and that I will interrupt whatever I'm doing to go do it.
2: And we, and we tend not to even really think about this. We don't think, oh, now my body has need of water, I must go get it. It's just like, it's just what you do. Yeah. Uh, like, I mean, right here as we're recording, I have a, a big thermos of water and
1: I just end up casually sipping on it the whole time. Yeah, same here. I always get a nice big glass of water before we start recording. But, but the question would be, why are our bodies so sensitive to these tiny changes in osmolality, in the amount of, uh, of osmolites dissolved in the blood? Why would like a 1% increase in salt concentration really cause that much of a problem? Well, the authors offer some explanations. Uh, they say, first of all, you've got this thing in your body known as the electrochemical gradient, the cells in our bodies are selectively permeable to specific ions, quote, resulting in an electrochemical gradient across the plasma membrane that is exploited for numerous cellular functions. So uh, this means that there's a difference in the electrical charge and the concentration of various chemicals on opposite sides of the membrane that surrounds each of our cells, and the difference or the gradient here, the fact that it's different on each side of the membrane, is what permits the transportation of ions across the membrane so that cells can do things, so that they can send and receive things. So if you change your blood osmolality, you, you say increase the concentration of salt in the body's water content, you change this gradient and uh, you, you change the water contents inside cells and you, quote, degrade normal cellular function. Now, I was trying to think of a rough analogy, and here's what I came up with. Uh, this may be very rough, but it's my best attempt. So when you change your blood osmolality away from its ideal, I would say your body sort of becomes like a city that starts having system-wide problems opening and closing doors, uh, now, is, is the problems opening and closing doors of all kinds throughout a city get worse? Eventually, this would just cause myriad diverse problems throughout the city, uh, much like it would in your body.
2: Well, that that just sounds like chaos. That just sounds like, like compl- all order is falling out, out
1: the window. Right, and you can actually see that the repre- a visual representation of that chaos in a chart that the authors include in their paper where it shows what uh, the typical symptoms are as the blood osmolality goes too far above or below what it's supposed to be. Uh, and, uh, basically on both sides, it's sort of a mirror image with a few differences. So you got the normal range, but then you start getting away from it. You get things like irritability, lethargy, nausea, ataxia, trembling, hypothermia. And then in both cases, you end up in the seizures and death territory.
2: So yeah, so basically, yeah, you know, we have this this thin little um, uh, realm of uh, stability, and to either extreme, it's just madness and death.
1: Right. So the body has to very carefully keep that concentration of osmolites in the right range, and if it gets off, there, there are it will take drastic measures to get it right again. Uh, but then the authors identify another major reason that the body has to keep fluid uh, volume and osmolality at the right levels which is blood pressure. You know, they say your body uses blood to transport oxygen and other essential nutrients to all of its tissues. Everything in the body needs to get oxygen uh, that, you know, from the lungs and the heart and the blood has to get there to do its work. If the volume of water in the body drops below ideal levels, blood volume actually decreases. There's there's not enough blood, which means the circulatory system has to work harder and harder to keep blood pressure up where it needs to be to get to all the parts of the body and deliver those nutrients. Hmm. So in addition to maintaining the right concentration of those dissolved things like sodium, you also just need to have enough water in your body to keep your blood pressure up, to allow your heart to keep getting uh, blood to all the parts of the body.
2: It just—it kind of comes back to what you said earlier about you know the, we're these water bags. We're creatures made out of water, and if we don't have enough water, we don't have enough of us.
1: Right. Yeah. Noth- nothing works without it. Yeah. Anyway, the authors say that the bodies of animals have evolved to carefully preserve blood volume and blood osmolality, and then they describe some of the main components of this system that we know about. So first of all, there are neurons that monitor blood osmolality and volume. You've got specially dedicated cells in the central nervous system that pay attention to this stuff. And when they detect a problem, they, quote, trigger a coordinated set of autonomic neuroendocrine and behavioral responses that defend these parameters against change. So one of the main measures the body can take to defend against changes in osmolality is modulating kidney function. So as osmolality increases, you get a surge of antidiuretic hormone, which makes the kidneys change tack to keep more water inside the body and make the urine more highly concentrated, make it less diluted with water. Of course, the kidneys can't do their job alone uh, because they also have to do other things. In addition to that, they have to help purge the body of toxic substances and other kinds of waste. And of course, some some water volume will necessarily be lost in that process. Uh, Also, the body loses water through these other means we mentioned a minute ago, sweating, breathing, and so forth. So eventually the body will be forced to consume new water to restore the balance and the volume of the blood plasma. Uh, so, so that's the the chemistry and the physiology. But eventually, you have to get to behavior. At some point, the brain has to trigger behaviors to get new water in. So, an animal thinks I need to drink water. Of course, this behavior can be costly. There, you know, there are factors working against an animal's motivation to, to do it because. It might involve spending energy finding and traveling to a water source. It might involve taking big risks. I mean, think of all the the nature documentaries you've seen mm-hmm. where predation happens at the water's edge, whether it's a crocodile jumping out of the water or a predator sneaking up while an animal is distracted by lapping up water. Yeah, and and some of those predators have been have traditionally been human beings. Oh, totally. And of course, drinking water just involves temporarily deprioritizing other important things like, you know, in the natural context, maybe forging for food or pursuing reproduction, but even think, you know, it might force you to get up from gaming or whatever.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, it, this is one of those areas, uh, again, where like w- with humans, so many of us are, are are fortunate that we never have to hunt for water. You know, the drinking water is readily available to us. We have all that we need. And likewise, through human um, civilization, we we tend to have the food situation knocked as well. Uh, Again, in in ideal Mm. circumstances, you're not going to have to spend... Um, most of your day foraging for food, which is going to be the case with many different species of animals, uh, you know, where most of the day is about just finding the food, eating the food. And of course, there's no, there's no room for anything else. And if you're having to hunt for extra water along the way, then you're, that's getting in the way potentially of this, uh, this vital food hunt.
1: Yeah. Just as an aside, easy access to clean, drinkable, running water, is like my go-to example of what's good about modern civilization. You know, there are a lot of people who kind of demonize modern civilization and there are a lot of things about it not to like, but, uh, but uh, easy access to clean water is like, that is the most unambiguous good thing I can think of.
2: Right. I mean, to to the, to the, extent that it's ridiculous in some in, in many cases you know yeah. where someone might ask well, what, what is this uh, what is this water in your toilet well this is drinking water the the drinking water that comes into the house it goes into the toilet we just make sure that the, the water in there is uh, <laughs> is perfectly fresh and drinkable um which i guess is good for the dogs and the cats but um uh, you know certainly that i think you, you see these various uh, you know gray water models Um, Mm. that certainly make a lot more sense. Like, why should the drinking water be the water in the toilet? Can't the water uh, from the washing of my hands be the water in the toilet?
1: Wouldn't that make more sense? Of course, it requires more work. Right. But to come back to the the wild context, I mean, obviously, there are all these things that would be uh, factors pushing against your, your acquisition of water when your body needs it. So, of course, what an animal needs is intrinsic motivation, actually. They're demotivating factors that are just natural parts of the environment. So, acquiring water needs its own intrinsic motivation, hence the motivating desire of thirst. It is a moment-to-moment drive to acquire water that's calibrated by the constantly updated feedback on blood volume and osmolality, though there may also be some other interesting uh, and more surprising inputs on it that we'll get to in a bit. Now, the authors point out that thirst appears to have both positive and negative motivating mechanisms. And I think you can think about food uh, food and hunger as an analogy here, because there's something sort of uh, along the same line. So you've got positive reinforcement of fluid drinking behavior, by just making drinking water when you're thirsty feel really good. You know, when you're very thirsty, that glass of water, it's, it's delicious. It's wonderful. It feels mm-hmm. great. And then you've got the negative reinforcement side, which is that thirst is inherently unpleasant. It is experienced as a type of discomfort or pain that has to be alleviated by drinking fluid. So we all know from experience that these things are true, that you have this positive and negative reinforcement mechanism within the brain for thirst and the drinking of water. But uh, what's very interesting is that at least at the time of this paper in 2016, how these two mechanisms of thirst are instantiated in the brain is still not fully understood. There are some major question marks remaining. And uh, I think there are at least a few other studies that we can refer to in subsequent parts of the series about uh where where some ideas have developed since then but there there are still a lot of questions out there and this is this is one of the reasons that i thought it would be so interesting to pursue thirst as a series on the show because it's surprising that there are things we still don't know about it it seems like one of those things that would be absolutely totally understood at this point uh but but there are some great outlying questions about thirst and and uh how we experience thirst, uh, what, what are the neural pathways there? How is thirst sated? And so forth. So maybe we'll have to call it for this first part here. I know I'm only halfway through discussing this uh, primer paper, but if we go on through the end of this one, this, this first episode is going to be two hours long or something. So so maybe we should call it. What do you think, Rob?
2: I think so, yeah. I'm uh, okay. actually almost out of water here, uh, and I'm going to have to refill. But uh, yeah, I'm excited to keep going with this. There are a number of little uh, areas I'm hoping we'll get into. Uh, the manipulation of thirst by other organisms. Uh, the, and, and life forms the um uh, i want to get back to the taste of water uh this Ooh, is something that's yeah. always fascinated me i mean granted yeah. water the the the, the taste of, of of water will change depending on where you're getting the water but you'll sometimes hear people say well i don't like the taste of water or we'll think of, of water as having no taste at all um i actually found some uh some some uh, some papers dealing with this topic
1: a little bit so i think that could be fun to discuss People who don't like the taste of water, that is a telltale sign of vampirism. <laughs> Just add some red
2: uh, food coloring to it. Then then you'll, yeah. then you'll be like, oh, this is great. This is wonderful.
1: Okay, well, all veins to drink from when we return.
2: All right. uh, In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you'll find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Artifact episodes on Wednesdays. Listener mail on Mondays. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious matters and
1: just discuss a weird film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode, Episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at Stuff to Blow Your Mind.
0: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.